Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Once, I was consumed by a competitive self-righteous spirit. At the age of four, growing up on Roosevelt Island, my mother always brought me and my sister to Trinity Baptist Church every Sunday and instilled in us the importance of faith, hard work, and discipline. I can honestly say that I have been through every single part of this church. And in full disclosure, even broke a window on the roof with my friend Patrick Sell. However, growing up in New York City was tough. My parents' marriage fell apart when I was young, and my mother raised me and my little sister as a single parent. I remember vividly We had a one-bedroom apartment, we had one bed, and the three of us would all sleep on it together. Given the plethora of distractions and vices in Manhattan, I developed an addiction to pornography as an adolescent and also habitually started stealing. In high school, I excelled as an athlete, being captain of both my soccer and tennis teams, but in the process developed a very self-centered, competitive spirit. I always felt the need to prove that I was better. In college and in the early stages of my professional career, I saw this character flaw manifested particularly when I was working for McKinsey, a U.S. consulting firm, and had been relocated to work in Shanghai, China. As one of my first jobs out of graduate school, I remember being given a corporate credit card, an expensive laptop, and working insane hours, often until 2 a.m. in the morning. I believed that I was one of the best and brightest, and that I could achieve anything through my hard work and charm. That all came crashing down when, after only four months, I was asked to leave the firm. I went from flying around the world, staying in five-star hotels, to then being unemployed, Not to mention that I had just been recently married to my college sweetheart, Joanna, which makes for a great first impression for my in-laws. In 2002, in 2012, after returning back to the United States, another huge step back was after almost seven years working at HSBC Bank, I I was yet again asked to leave. For seven months, being unemployed in Manhattan with a wife and two little ones, My daughter, Mia, my son, Francis, was a truly humbling experience. Then Jesus found me, and he told me that he loved me just for me, that my worth and relevance were confirmed when he died on a cross to save me, and it was not in my resume or in the name of the organization on my business card. When the world says, keep climbing the corporate ladder, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When the world says knowledge is power, the Bible says the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. When the world says you can achieve anything, the Bible says I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Today, I can rest in the knowledge that nothing I do can make him turn from me and nothing I do can make him love me more. My name is Earl Carr. And I'm loved by God and called to be a saint.
我们知道律法是属灵的，而我是属肉体的，已经卖给罪了。实际上，我所做的我不明白，因为我所愿意的我没有去做，我所恨恶的我反而去做。那么，如果我说做我不愿意做的事，我就赞同了律法是好的，所以。现在这事就不再是我所做的，而是住在我里面的罪所做的。实际上，我知道在我里面，就是我是肉体中没有良善，因为行善的愿意是在里面，却行不出来。这样，我愿意行的善，我没有去行；我不愿意做的物。我反而去做，那么如果我做我不愿意做的事，这事就不再是我所做的，而是住在我里面罪所做的。Thank you. Thank you, Earl.、Uh, for those of you that don't know Earl very well,、uh, Earl is everywhere.、Uh, Earl. Earl does so much for this church.、Uh, he has been、uh, the deacon of our Welcome and Connect ministry for the last few years, and has really helped us to to make that a better ministry. And now he's he's、uh, one of the nominees for our trustee、uh, position. And I'm just thrilled to see、uh, God just work in his life and to see the transformation that's taken place there. And another thing that that you may not know about Earl is. He is probably one of the most gregarious and welcoming people in our church.、Uh, at least a dozen times, Earl has pulled me over、uh, to introduce me to someone that he has brought to Trinity、uh, to experience what we have here. And I just feel like、uh, we are blessed、uh, to have you, Earl. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your testimony. Okay,、uh, how many of you、uh, know? A person that you would say has a Jekyll and Hyde personality, a Jekyll and Hyde personality. Okay, are you picturing? Are you picturing that person right now? Are you picturing that person right now? Can you picture that person?、Uh, maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's someone that you live with. If if you're sitting next to that person right now, don't look. <laughs> Do you know where the term Jekyll and Hyde came from? Do you know where it came from? You said a musical, yeah? Okay. <laughs> the restaurant down on. <laughs> well, in 1886, the Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson、uh, published a book entitled "The Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde." The Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. That was the original title, and later the title was changed to just simply Jekyll and Hyde. It's a story about a good doctor, a good doctor by the name of Doctor Jekyll, and Doctor Jekyll becomes increasingly unhappy with his life because he realizes that there's a duality about his personality. There's a good side and there's a bad side, and they are constantly in conflict with one another. And both both of these personalities, both of these natures, are keeping the other from enjoying life. And so he's becoming 
more and more frustrated with his life. Now, in the book, Dr. Jekyll says, if I could be housed in separate identities, he's kind of dreaming of what this would look like. If I could be housed in separate identities, life would be relieved of all that is unbearable. The unjust might then go his way, delivered from all the aspirations and the remorse of his upright twin, and the just could walk on his path doing good and no longer exposed to the disgrace by the actions of his evil other. Now, as the story goes, Dr. Jekyll is able to develop a potion that enables him to separate his two identities completely. He's able to separate his two natures. And he calls his evil self Mr. Hyde. Well, as it turns out, Mr. Hyde is far more evil than he ever anticipated. Far more powerful and far more uncontrollable than he originally thought. And he says, after drinking the potion, when when Mr. Hyde comes to life, he says, at first breath of this new life, I knew myself to be much more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold to slavery, sold as a slave to original sin, and the thought braced and delighted me like wine. You hear that? This sounds almost exactly like the struggle that Paul is facing in chapter 7 of Romans. In fact, Dr. Jekyll even uses the same words to describe his plight. He says, sold a slave to original sin. Well, I did a little bit of research, and as it turns out, Stevenson, the author of this book, was, was part of a, a, a very staunch Presbyterian household. He grew up in a very legalistic environment, and clearly, Romans 7 was the inspiration for his book. Now, for the past several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Romans, and Paul makes it clear from the very beginning of Romans that we are all sinners, every one of us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of a Savior. And then we learn that we are justified by faith in Jesus and not by works through the atonement of Jesus. Okay? The old self is put to death, and we have a new life, a new identity in Jesus. Wow. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? It sounds like coming to faith in Jesus will be a remedy for all of our sinful behaviors. It sounds like we come to faith in Christ, and we no longer have a sin problem. Okay? But when we get to chapter 7, we find that Paul is still struggling with sin. He's still having an ongoing battle with his sin nature. He's having an internal conflict. And this is Paul, by the way. This is the Apostle Paul, who if we were to line up all the Christians from the very best to the very worst, Paul would probably be second only to Jesus in all that he has accomplished for the Christian faith. Okay, he's he's an amazing saint. And yet Paul is having a profound struggle with his sin nature, and he describes it in chapter 7. 
And then, in verse 18 and 19, he describes it like this. He says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. I keep on doing this. This leads me to ask, or maybe it should lead you to ask, is the story of Jekyll and Hyde, is what Paul is describing here, is that Christianity? Is that what we've signed up for? A lifetime of ongoing struggle, a war that we can't possibly win? Well, yes, in that we are engaged in an ongoing struggle. Paul describes the struggle. We have this sinful nature. We're born into a sinful world. We have an enemy that is, that is alive and well and trying to bring us down all the time. But no, because the battle that we are fighting as Christians is very different from the battle that we were fighting before we became a Christian. There's still a battle, but something has shifted. Now, the story of Jekyll and Hyde does not distinguish between the two battles, the shift that has taken place. In fact, Dr. Jekyll, in the book, if you've read it, realizes that Mr. Hyde is becoming so strong, so much more powerful than he can control, even when he isn't taking the potion. Doctor or Mr. Hyde is coming to life and, and he's doing all sorts of destructive things. Uh, and Dr. Jekyll is concerned that if he doesn't do something drastic, who knows what Mr. Hyde could do. And so in the end, he commits suicide. Dr. Jekyll kills himself because he thinks that's the only way that he can rid the world of Mr. Hyde. Okay, pretty profound. Now, Dr. Jekyll knew that he was fighting a battle that he could not win. And that's why he made that choice. But Paul, on the other hand, knows that he is fighting a battle that he can't lose. He's fighting a battle that he can't lose. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, if you were to read verses 7 through 13 you would see that Paul is very transparent about this struggle that he's in. But what you might notice as well is that he writes about that struggle in the past tense. He's writing about it in the past tense. And then when he gets to verse 14, he switches to the present tense. Okay, why? What changed? What is it that, that Paul is trying to tell us? Obviously, it's intentional that he switches tense. Well, before we come to faith, we are enslaved to sin. And there's nothing in our power, in our willpower, that enables us to overcome that sin. We may have some victories, but it's never going to be consistent. Okay, we're enslaved to sin. So like Dr. Jekyll... We're fighting a battle that we cannot win before we come to faith. But then, when we come to faith in Jesus, we are given a new identity in Christ. And power 
over sin and death. So while the struggle with sin continues, and we still have this sinful flesh, and our enemy, Satan, is still prowling around like a lion, hoping to devour us, the battle or the struggle is no longer hopeless because of our new identity in Christ. What Paul is telling us is that while our sin nature is not eradicated when we come to faith in Christ, it no longer defines us. Before it defined us, it defines us, but now it no longer defines us because our new self, our new identity, our true identity is in Christ. Evil influence will continue to dwell within our old nature. Satan will continue to try and bring us down through lies and through temptations and through deceit and through condemnation. And at times, we will give in to those. We will succumb to those from time to time. But we are not enslaved to them like we were before. When we embrace our new identity in Christ... We are stepping into the person that God created us to be. We are becoming the person that God intended us to be. Apart from Christ, we were a sinner enslaved to sin, but in Christ we are a saint who at times falls into sin. Do you see the difference? There's a profound difference between the two. That's why Easter is such a huge celebration around here. Everything is new when Christ raises from the dead. Everything changes. Now, of course, our enemy, Satan, will do all that he can to convince us that nothing has changed, that we're the same as we always were, that you're still in bondage to sin, that you are still a slave to sin, and he'll remind you of all of the things that you keep falling into, And he'll try to condemn you, and he'll try to convince you that the battle that you're facing is hopeless and that it cannot be won. That's what he does, and he does it pretty well. He convinces a lot of people. And of course, there's a lot of confusion around this. We have this new life in Christ, a new identity in Christ, but our struggle still continues. That seems confusing. Uh, A few years ago, uh, I was offering the Alpha course here at Trinity, and and a woman came through the course, and in the first week, she she told me that she was not a believer, but she was seeking, and she she knew that something had to change in her life, and, and as the course progressed, she gave her life to Christ. And she was so excited. I still remember it like it was yesterday. She was just so excited to make that transition. And then she came to me after that, that same night, and she said, I want to be baptized. I really want to be baptized. And rarely have I ever met someone that wanted to be baptized as badly as she did. And as it turned out, we had baptisms here at Trinity that following week. And so I said, well, you can do that. Now that you've come to faith in Christ, you should get baptized. And so she came, and she got baptized. And again, she was just so excited. And then that following Tuesday... She came into my office, and I could see that she was really distraught. I mean, something was wrong, and and so I said, please, come in and and sit down. What's going on? And she sat down in my office, and she said, I want to talk with you about my baptism. And I said, okay. 
And she said, I don't think it took. (laughs) And I thought she was kidding. I really thought she was kidding. And so I said, well, you know, it's possible that I didn't hold you down long enough. I mean, and, 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 and then I realized soon after that she was not kidding. She said, I don't think it took. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Why do you think that it didn't take? And she said, well, after I got home on Sunday, and then yesterday as well, I noticed that I'm still sinning. I'm still having the same uh, lustful thoughts that I had before. I'm still, I'm still getting angry. I'm still, I'm still struggling with... Uh, and I said, oh, I see. I see where you're coming from. You thought that if you became a Christian and that you got baptized, that you would not have an issue with sin any longer. She said, well, of course. And I said, that's not the way that it works. You see, our struggle continues. You see, when we come to faith in Christ uh, and then get baptized, uh, baptism doesn't magically eradicate our sin nature. We still have that. And we still live in this fallen world. Um, And we have an enemy that is still going to be working hard to bring you down. But what you do have is a new identity in Christ. You have power over sin and death that you didn't have before. And baptism is just a public declaration of what Christ has done on your behalf. We still have to learn how to walk in that power and authority that comes with that new identity in Christ. Now, if we go back all the way to the war in heaven, where Lucifer, who was the highest-ranking angel, decided that he wanted to be God and rebelled against God and convinced a third of the angels to mutiny with him, there was an all-out war in heaven. And at the end of the day, Lucifer was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels who are now demons. Lucifer's name was changed to Satan, and he is still alive and still able to influence us. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They are fallen angels, and Lucifer is a created being, okay? Now, their desire is to undermine anything that God loves, anything that God cares about. They will do what they can to undermine that, and they know that God loves you. They are perplexed by the fact that God loves you so much that God would give his only son to be crucified so that you could be in a right relationship with God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, his righteousness was attributed to you if you believe in him. You have a new identity which comes with power and authority over sin and death. Now, not only do we have a new identity in Christ, if Satan and all his demons are lined up against us, Think about the odds if we're going to war. Think about the odds. We have God the Father on our side, who is the creator of the universe. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. 
He's omnipresent. He is the creator of the universe. He can speak things into existence. Okay? We also have Jesus, the Son of God, who broke the chains of sin and death. And he is now uh, interceding on our behalf. We have the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts. If we come to faith, we receive a deposit of the Holy Spirit that resides within us, that counsels us, directs us, guides us, protects us. And then, remember, only a third of the angels were cast out of heaven, which means two-thirds of the angels are still left in heaven that are willing to do whatever God wants to make sure that his will is accomplished which includes protecting you and me, okay? So to me, this sounds like a pretty good battle. This sounds like the odds are good. But Satan is still trying to convince us that we, have, that we are engaged in a war that we can't win, okay? He is called the deceiver, And he is constantly lying to us and trying to bring us down. His goal is to sift us, to keep us from being in relationship with God. Because that's what God wants more than anything else. For us to be in right relationship with him. Several years ago, um, it was my, my second year in college, I had an opportunity to go to Japan and teach there. And... The summer after my senior year in high school, I had recommitted my life to Christ. I had, for years, traveled with a pretty wild bunch of friends that were partiers, and I was accustomed to that lifestyle. But something happened that summer where I came face-to-face with Christ, and I knew that I wanted something new. And so I I, I dedicated my life to Christ. And then soon after, I had this opportunity to go to Japan and teach. And I thought, what a great opportunity this will be. I, I can be a witness for God. I, I can, uh, you know, what an incredible opportunity. And so I went there with great aspirations. But when I arrived and I, I went to the dorm where I was staying, I quickly learned that I was going to be living with what might be the biggest partying group of people I have ever met in my life, a bunch of college students from all around the country, and they were just absolutely huge partiers, and I just couldn't stand up to that. I, I, instead of standing up for God like I, like I intended to, I blended right in with that group of people. And for the next four months, I just did everything that they did. And I remember that when I left, I went to the airport, and I got on the plane and I was looking out at uh, all of my Japanese friends that that were waving goodbye to me, and my heart just broke. It was like the Holy Spirit came upon me and just helped me to see the opportunity that I had missed. And my heart was just so heavy. And then as it turned out, there was a mechanical problem and the plane wasn't able to take off, so we had to deplane. And we had to get in this line where we were going to get a voucher for a hotel where we would spend the night, and then the following morning the plane was going to go out. And so I was standing in line, and as I was standing there, I'm still thinking about 
this conviction that I'm feeling. My, my heart is heavy. And right behind me, I hear a man witnessing to a girl behind me. He's explaining the entire gospel to her in English. And for four months, I had hardly heard anyone speaking English. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so I, when I neared the front of the line, I turned around and I said to this man, I said, um, my name is James, and you know, I introduced myself, and I said, what are you doing here in Japan? And he said, I'm doing ministry. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> you know? And uh, I feel you know, convicted about that, but I'm not. And we talked for a few minutes, and then I got my voucher for the hotel room, and then the following day, I boarded the plane again, sat down, and there was a Japanese woman sitting next to me, and she got up, and she left, and she never came back. And uh, the plane took off, and again, I felt this incredible conviction. And then that conviction turned to condemnation. Have you ever had that happen? You feel convicted about something, and then all of a sudden you start feeling incredible condemnation. I started having this internal dialogue, and in hindsight, I know I was, I was having a dialogue with the enemy. And the enemy was saying to me, he said, James, you know, don't you know that you don't have the character to be a Christian? You don't have the character. I suppose you're going to ask for forgiveness for the things that you've done over these past four months. And I said, yeah, I, I think I will. And he said, do you know that you're going to be asking forgiveness for the same sins that you've asked for forgiveness for countless times before? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know that the, the sins that you commit are the sins that nailed Jesus to the cross? And I said, yes. And he said, so why don't you just have the character to admit the integrity to admit that you don't have the character to live up to the Christian life. Wouldn't that be better than being a hypocrite like you are? And I was thinking about this, and I was really feeling as though that made sense. And right as I was pondering this, this guy that I had met in the airport lobby comes walking down the aisle, and he said, is anyone sitting next to you? And I said, well, you know, there was this Japanese lady that was sitting there, but she left and she never came back. And he, and he said, well, let me sit down for a minute. And he sat down and he said, I have a word for you from the Lord. And I said, you do? And he said, he said yes. He said, when, when Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. He said, I don't know if that's going to mean anything to you, but that's the word that I have for you. And then he got up and he walked away. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my gosh. The Lord knew exactly what was going to be transpiring here in this place. He knew all the things that I would do over these previous four months. And right now he is extending grace and mercy to me. And so instead of renouncing my faith and giving up, I, 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 I turned to God and I said, Lord, please forgive me. Give me the strength and the power to walk in my new identity. Give me the character to stand against the enemy. And then I rebuked the enemy 
And I committed to God to go back and to live according to God's plan for my life. Okay? Now, I knew in that moment that God was extending his grace to me. I knew it. I knew that the enemy had been trying to sift me in the same way that he will try to sift you. I knew that he was taking what the Holy Spirit was doing, convicting me to move me closer to God, and he was turning it into condemnation. And there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. But what I know of God is that God is a God of second chances. I was talking with Marlene. She, she works in our office, and I told her, if I was ever to start a church, I would probably name it the Church of the Second Chance. Because that just resonates with me. Now, if we know who we are in Christ, and we refuse to believe the lies of the enemy... Satan has no power over us. Absolutely no power over us. As soon as I asked God for forgiveness, I could feel the presence of his spirit filling me. And it was almost like a, a Peter experience. You know, God, God allowing me to, to, to stand up and, and recognize that, that my past is insignificant. What matters is what I'm going to do going forward. And here's the thing. There will be days when it seems like Satan has tremendous power over you. But you need to remember that he is a defeated foe. In verse 22, Paul says, For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. Paul can delight in God's law because he knows that his salvation isn't based on following all the rules. It isn't based on living a life that is free from sin. He knows that he's broken, and he admits that. But he also knows that God's grace is sufficient. Paul knows that everything he needs to be in right relationship with God has already been accomplished in Jesus. Everything. So anything Paul does in response to God's law isn't an effort on his part to gain salvation or favor with God. It is an effort to show his gratitude for what God has done for him. Now, as Paul concludes chapter 7, he admits that he's a broken and sinful man. In verse 24, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He's talking about his sinful nature. Now, because Paul has been so transparent about his struggle throughout this passage, we might think that this is a cry of despair, but it's not. It's a cry of deliverance. When Paul says, who will deliver me from this burden of death, he already knows the answer. He knows the answer because in verse 25, he says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's making a declarative statement that Satan has no place in his life. Paul is proclaiming that it is God who will rescue him, and so he's giving thanks for what God has already done. 
And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are given that same power and authority to overcome anything that the enemy might throw our way. We might feel as though we don't have the strength to overcome certain temptations or addictions, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says we will never be tempted beyond what we can endure. And he says that because he knows that when Christ is living in us, it is Christ's power that enables us to overcome addictions and struggles and temptations, not our own power. Now, if we look ahead to the next chapter, chapter 8, 1 and 2, Paul brings home the point by saying, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation. Now, how do we live a life that is free from the law of sin and death? Free from condemnation. Over the next couple of weeks, Keith is really going to dig into this. And he's going to give you some, some tips on how you can do that. But I don't want to leave you hanging, so I'm going to give you a couple. Okay? First, we really need to know God. We really need to know God. How many of you have ever been in a dating relationship? Yeah? Three of you? Okay. <laughs> here's the thing when you enter into a relationship with someone that you are really attracted to how do you develop that relationship what do you do you commit to yourself that you are going to get to know that person better than anybody else knows that person I mean you rearrange your schedule so you can be at the places that they're at you start finding out what sort of books they read so that you can read them, so you know what they care about. You call them all the time. You talk with them all the time. You're trying to get to know everything that you possibly can about them so that you can align your life with theirs. That's what we need to do with God. We need to treat him as if he's someone that we want to start dating. And I think you know what I'm talking about. We need to talk to him. That's what prayer is. Just talking with God, communicating with him. Tell him how you're feeling. Tell him the things you're struggling with. Find out what he cares about and start aligning your life with those things. We can do it through prayer. We can do it through reading the scriptures. Knowing the scriptures is really, really important when it comes to fighting battles with the enemy. Remember when Jesus was tempted? What did he do? He recited scripture to the enemy. Every time the enemy said something to him, he just came back with scripture. And what did the enemy do at the end? He just fled. He left. There was nothing he could do. Here's a second way that we can live lives free from condemnation, free from the bondage of sin and death. In Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, he's talking about the demons, those fallen angels, and our enemy, Satan. Do you know that you only have one enemy? Satan. 
Only one enemy. We have a tendency to, to find enemies all over the place. You know, we look at our boss or a neighbor. We say, that guy's our, he's my enemy. Sometimes it's your spouse. That's my enemy. They're not your enemy. It doesn't matter what they've done or what they're doing. There's something behind anything evil that is your true enemy. And that's where the focus needs to lie. So whenever we feel attacked, we need to remind Satan of who we are in Christ. And we need to make him pay. It's called spiritual warfare. Engaging in spiritual warfare. And here's a very practical way that you can engage in spiritual warfare. First, identify the lie. Because the enemy is always trying to deceive you. What's the lie that you're believing? Once you know that, you're already halfway to victory. Once you identify the lie, you rebuke that. You uphold the truth. You rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus. And then you go on the, the offensive. Here's what I like to do. Whenever I'm attacked by Satan, this is what I do. I say, Satan... I know that you're trying to bring me down. I know that you're lying to me, and I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And because you did that to me, here's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to pray that God puts a hedge of protection around me. I'm going to pray that he binds you, that you have no authority and you have no power over anything that I'm working on that is in alignment with God. And also, just to make it stick... I'm going to name five other people that I care about, five people that I love dearly, and I'm going to pray the same for those people, that you have no authority in their lives, that you have no power in their lives, that, that God puts a hedge of protection around each of them. And every time I sense that you're trying to attack me, I'm going to stop what I'm doing, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, and I'm going to pray those same prayers for myself and for those five people. And do you know that if you start practicing that, you will start to sense the power and the authority that you have in Jesus because of the new identity that you've been given. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that we could have that power and authority, so that we could win this battle, so that we could spend eternity with God our Father. We are in a battle, but it's a battle that we cannot lose because of what Christ has done. Amen? Amen. Amen. Um, I came across a video that I think really spoke to me. It really touched my heart when it comes to this issue. And before we come to the table, before we receive communion and celebrate what Christ has done for us, I would like for you to watch this video. At this time, please pause playback and either use the link provided on the previous page or search YouTube for Lifehouse Everything Skit Remastered. It really hits home to me. And uh, it's, a, it's a true depiction of what Christ has done uh, to give us the freedom to be in relationship with him without the bondage of sin and death. And that's what we celebrate uh, when we come to the table. 